You're listening to Home for Christmas, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, Pastor Ryan Hughley discusses four ways the season of Advent invites our hearts home. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. Just in case you weren't here last week or didn't get an opportunity to hear uh, the message, let me just remind you what it is that we're after in this series that we're calling Home for Christmas. We have a very simple but specific twofold goal. The first part of this goal is that we want to release the expectation that the holiday fantasy we are fed should be our reality. So you'll remember last week we talked about how. Uh, This time of year is just filled with images and stories of overnight transformations. Someone goes to bed one way, they wake up the next morning, they're totally different. We want to let go of the expectation that all of our gift giving and getting will be perfect, that all of our time spent with family, family will be comfortable and flawless, because none of that is real. And so the reason that we need to release this fantasy is that it doesn't really have the space necessary for our actual experience. So that's the first part of the goal. We want to release that fantasy as normative. And then secondly, we want to receive these Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love because they make room for the reality of living between two arrivals. The first arrival being the birth of Jesus and the second being his final return when he will redeem every heartache, heal every wound, and right every wrong. We live between those two times. And as a result of living between these two arrivals, life can be very, very messy. And so last week, we started with the theme of hope, and we talked about our tendency to conflate hope with optimism. But where optimism is more circumstantial, hope is what happens when we shift our gaze to the unchanging person of Jesus. And so if you missed last week, now you're totally caught up, and uh, and we can shift our attention to this week's theme, which is going to be peace. And so to start, I want to start a little bit differently. I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes again just for a moment. Just close your eyes for a second, and I I want us to really do what we can to settle into a moment of calm. There's so much chaos in us and around us. And so let's just start by taking a couple of really intentional breaths. Deep inhale through your nose, long, slow exhale through your mouth. And as we share this moment of quiet calm with your eyes closed, I want to ask you to just contemplate a simple question for a moment. What comes into your mind when you hear the word, peace? Don't judge it, just notice what comes into your mind when you hear the word, peace. Maybe you're immediately overwhelmed by your lack of experience of peace. Maybe a person's face comes to mind, that their very presence brings peace to you. Maybe it's the image of a specific place. Maybe other descriptive words come to mind that signify peace for you. What comes into your mind when you think about the word I want to ask you to open your eyes now, and I want to ask you uh, 
another question. So obviously this space has some limitations because it's not very big. The upside to it is it's very intimate. I was sitting next to Enrique. I was like, brother, we are about to have an intimate worship experience, you and I, nose to nose. So one of the advantages is that on occasion we can interact maybe a little bit more. And so just for the sake of order, if you are brave enough, I want to ask anyone to slip up their hand and I'll call on you to just share what, what came into your mind when you hear the word peace. There's no right or wrong, just what came into your mind when you heard the word peace. So slip up your hand. Please don't leave me up here by myself. Somebody, Joey. Mountains. Good answer. Quiet. Perfect. Yes. Stillness. Reading in bed. Good. Good for you, reading in bed. It's awesome. All right, so here's what, here's what I want you to pay attention to in so many of our answers. And even for those of us that didn't verbalize, I'm, I'm sure that some version of what we heard is probably what came up for us. So notice how when we think about the word peace, there is often this shared thread that would link most of our images of peace together. And by that I mean they tend to all be tied together by the absence of something. Typically, it's the absence of conflict or the absence of chaos of some kind. And the reality is that makes sense because peace can certainly involve the absence of conflict. But as is so often the case, the biblical idea of peace can not only point to the absence of certain things, but also to the presence of something far better. And this has everything to do with the birth of Jesus that we celebrate during this Christmas season. And so I want to explore this biblical invitation to peace this morning in three different ways. First, I want to look at what will most likely be a familiar part of the Christmas story for so many of us. And then secondly, I want to contemplate the significance and the scope of the biblical promise of peace. And then thirdly, I want to highlight Three places that Jesus longs to bring us peace. So if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. So you can open up to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 to 14. And I want to call this message, Peace, the Invitation to Wholeness. The Invitation to Wholeness. Now let me start by setting the stage for the particular part of the story that we're going to look at this morning. If you're not familiar with Luke chapter 2, the first seven verses that come before where we're going to be, they are all about the account of Jesus' birth. Now, we're not going to focus our attention there this morning, but let me give you the cliff notes so that you do understand what's happening. Luke, if you don't know, was a doctor by trade, and he is the author of this biographical account of Jesus' story. And notice how he anchors it in verifiable human history. And the reason that he does that is because he wants us to understand that this is not a fantasy like so many of the other Christmas stories. This actually happened. In the first century, the people of God were subject to Roman rule. And Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time, issued this decree that that the known inhabited world who was under Roman rule was all to return to their place of origin to be registered for the purpose of taxation. So what that meant is Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mother and adoptive father, they had to leave Nazareth where they lived, and they had to return to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph was from. So just think about this. They had to make the 85 to 90-mile trek while Mary is uber-pregnant, by the way, 
And there's, there's so many of these assumptions and myths that exist around the biblical story. One of them is that Mary rode a donkey. I have no idea where that came from. It's not in the Bible. Maybe she did. Maybe she walked. I would argue, regardless of her mode of transportation, the 90-mile journey, nine months pregnant, probably sucked. So they have to make this journey. They arrive in Bethlehem, and there is no guest room available for them. Another one of the modern myths is that they were making their way from like Holiday Inn to Holiday Inn, knocking on all the doors, and there's always some grumpy innkeeper who's like, we don't have any room. No idea where any of that came from either. What most likely <laughs> happened is that they were staying on the first floor of someone's home. I brought a picture of what a first century Jewish home most likely looked like. There was no barn that we know, that we know of because the Bible doesn't mention that. But in the first century, people lived on that second story of their home, and then oftentimes their animals were kept down below. And so on that bottom uh, portion is most likely where Mary and Joseph would have had to stay. And so it's against the backdrop of these very humble and less than ideal circumstances, and I would bet very much contrary to Mary's birth plan, she goes into labor and she delivers Jesus, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, on that ground. And then she wraps him in swaddling clothes and she places him in a manger. And again, unlike so many of the modern images of mangers, it was likely nothing more than just a hole that had been cut into a stone. And that's where the Messiah lay as he drew his first breaths. And as peaceful and calm as this situation is painted in artwork and in songs, just think about how confusing and how scary and disorienting this experience would have been for Mary and for Joseph. Maybe the only thing more surprising than Jesus' birthplace is this group of people that God chose to announce his birth to first. So look with me at verse 8. I'm going to read this whole story, and then we'll talk about it just a little bit. But look with me at verse 8. It says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. So as best you can, try to put yourself in this story for a second. Shepherding was a particularly difficult and thankless job. These people most often lived outside as we see here in our story. Verse 8 says that they were keeping watch at night over their flock. So they literally have to sleep outside under the stars with their sheep to protect them from thieves or from predators. And we don't know exactly what time it was. We don't know if they were awake. We don't know if they were asleep. But what we do know is that it's nighttime. And they're, I would guess, having a night like they had had so many other times before in their past. And, and all of a sudden, an angel appears to them. And the text tells us that they were terrified, which is understandable. It is very normative to be scared when we are surprised. 
Like earlier this week, I think it was Thursday, I was right upstairs in my study writing. I knew I had an appointment coming up with my friend Brianne who was coming in. And I was the only one here in the office and I was like hyper-focused on what I was doing. And then all of a sudden I hear her, she's got a real like mousy, quiet voice. She just goes, hi. And you would have thought a bomb went off behind me. And you know how sometimes when you get surprised or scared, you just say and respond? Like I turned around, I was like, you need to wear a bell. And I was like, <laughs> I apologize for that because you're not a cat, so you don't need to wear a bell. And so that, that was my reaction just with soft-spoken Brienne. Imagine an angelic being popping out of nowhere in the middle of the night. And this angel announces the birth of Jesus. And he gives them the sign. This is the whole reason why the beginning of Luke has these two details that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes and put him in a manger. It's so that when these shepherds came and they were looking for this newborn baby, that was the sign. This is what you're looking for. You're looking for the one wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And if this all was not overwhelming enough for them, verses 13 and 14 say, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, multitude is obviously not a specific number, but in the original language, it signifies thousands. So just as best you can, try to imagine thousands of angels singing, praising God and announcing that the long-awaited Messiah has come with a specific gift. Peace on earth to those he favors. Now that little phrase, people he favors, it's meant to be inclusive, not exclusive. Because it kind of sounds sort of like, I favor this one, not that one. Like that, It's not that. It's meant to be a very inclusive phrase. The angel announces that God's gift of peace is for all kinds of people, not just the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. But the bigger question that this leaves us with is what exactly is meant by peace on earth? Because if it's our definition, which is essentially the absence of conflict, it would seem like, well, that didn't go too well. Because clearly there's an immense amount of conflict in our world. There's an immense amount of conflict in our lives. And so if Jesus brought peace on earth as the absence of conflict on earth, it would seem as though it was a miserable failure. But could it be that our understanding of peace is just far too small? So when we look at the biblical word for peace, the Greek word that we translate as peace is the Greek word arene. And in classical Greek, that general meaning is just rest. But in the context of the New Testament, it expands on the Hebrew word for peace, which is the word shalom. And shalom has a way more robust meaning than we typically infer from the English word peace. Shalom carries with it the idea of health, of security, of well-being and salvation, and maybe most specifically, the idea of wholeness. And in the Old Testament, it used to refer, it's used to refer to the state of an individual, so an individual can experience shalom, Uh, two people or groups of people or two nations can experience shalom. It's even used to speak about God and humanity experiencing shalom. And over and over and over again, we see that it is not primarily established by human effort. It was a covenant gift of God. And sin 
caused a breakdown in the flow of that blessing of shalom from God to humanity because sin impedes our intimacy with God. From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, the Messiah was said to be the source of peace. And so in Isaiah 9 that we looked at last week, Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, Zechariah says that he will lead us in the way of peace. Here in Luke 2, he's said to bring peace on earth. And in John 14, 27, Jesus says, My peace I leave with you. So then, what is the clearest way to understand this bigger word for peace? Well, here's how I'd say it in a sentence. Peace is the process of Jesus making everything in and around us whole again. Jesus, I'm sorry, peace, it is connected to Jesus. Peace is the process of Jesus making everything in and around us whole again. So let me give you an imperfect image to help kind of capture the idea of this. My son, Lincoln, who's 10 now, he loves building with Lego. And most recently, he loves this Super Mario Lego series, which if you have not seen, it is very cool. Once again, I'm reminded that gone are the days of my childhood, which was just a bin filled with multicolored bricks that your only option was to build various sized squares out of. That's, or I suck at Lego. One of those two things is true. And this, like even on their website, they call this a real-life interactive play experience, which is, again, different than just bin with bricks. That's what I had. So what you do is you get to create these scenes from the games. Then you get to actually like move the characters through them. They collect coins. You take on challenges. You complete levels. It's amazing. Now, the downside to all of this is that these sets that he builds, they live on his bedroom floor, which means two things. Number one, Lincoln's floor is a death trap. One wrong step, and you bleed out in seconds. Secondly, they get stepped on, and these sets break very, very often. And so these beautiful sets that he's worked so meticulously to perfectly construct can be shattered into pieces on the floor. Now, the good news about Lego is that he can patiently and carefully, which he does, sit back down and rebuild and make those sets whole again. And the good news about Jesus is that he can do the exact same thing with you and I. Jesus brings peace to our lives by slowly making us whole again. And more specifically, I want to highlight three ways that Jesus longs to make us whole. The first one is that Jesus wants to make us whole in relationship with God. Jesus wants to make us whole in relationship with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, therefore... Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice there that the Apostle Paul highlights both a result and a reason for that result. And so let's start with the result. We can have a reine, we can have shalom, we can have peace with God, which is very good news for us because there is no flourishing in this life apart from peace with God. And so when sin shattered shalom, Jesus made a way for it to be restored. But contrary to our natural inclination, that wholeness is not healed by us jumping through a series of religious hoops in hopes of making ourselves good enough for him. We are declared righteous, Paul says, 
by faith. So just think with me for a second about what faith really is. Faith means throwing ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. So just imagine in your mind for a second uh, a person standing in a courtroom. They are on trial and they know that they have done something deserving of consequence. The judge knows they're guilty. The jury knows they're guilty. All the wa- people watching, they all know the person's guilty. The person standing in front of the judge, they know they're guilty. Everybody knows they are deserving of consequence. And so when they say, I am throwing myself on the mercy of the court, what that means is they are putting their fate in the hands of the court's authority. They are hoping for leniency and forgiveness. They're hoping for mercy when what they have earned is suffering. And that is what faith is. It's the acknowledgement that sin has shattered shalom with God. It's the admission that try as we might, we cannot restore that shalom on our own. And as a result, we trust Jesus to do it for us through his perfect life, his death in our place, and his resurrection. Jesus brings peace by making our relationship with God whole again. But that's not all. He also wants to bring peace in relationship with ourselves. In relationship with ourselves. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. It says this, May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he will do it. I think that's really encouraging for us when we take into consideration the reality that we are um, a hot mess, would be the way that I would describe it. In, In fact, the more that one knows themselves, the more aware they are, the more obvious it is that that we all have some degree of mess in our lives. And so anything in you that's like, well, I'm not a mess, well, that just, you are, you just lack self-awareness. Because the more aware we are of ourselves, the more we realize that we all, every single one of us, have varying degrees of brokenness in our lives. We have brokenness physically, emotionally, and mentally. And spiritual formation, or the theological word would be sanctification, is the ongoing work of God's Spirit bringing increased wholeness in all of these areas. And, different than from that first point, we actually do participate in this. So we don't participate in being made right with God. Jesus does that for us. We just simply put our faith in Him, and because of His life, death, and resurrection, we are made right with God. Theologians call that justification. But sanctification, this ongoing work of being formed in the image of Christ, we are invited to participate in that with the Holy Spirit by positioning ourselves for it. And so when we steward our physical health, when we take care of the bodies that God has given us, we are participating in that work of being made whole. When we begin to pay attention to and to care for our inner world, as we work through the loss of the past, as We work with the Spirit to bring our lives into further alignment with God's plan for our flourishing. We are positioning ourselves for the Spirit to bring greater and greater and greater 
wholeness in our lives. Jesus brings peace by making our relationship with ourselves whole again. And then finally, Jesus longs to bring peace in relationship with others. In relationship with others. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I'm not sure there's a more timely verse in the Bible for our culture than Romans 12, 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, you can't force anyone to do anything else, but as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do you know that everything the Bible has to say about relationship, which is quite a bit, is ultimately about cultivating shalom within relationship? Because when sin entered the world, that shalom that God intended for relationships was broken. God intends for our relationships to be secure, for them to be loving, for them to be encouraging, for them to form us in the image of Christ. But because relationships are made up of imperfect people, they often end up doing the opposite. And this is why in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says that one of the implications of being reconciled to God, like we've already talked about, is that we have been given what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. Now that phrase is loaded with meaning, but most practically, it means that three phrases should be ready on our lips at all times. These are three of the most important Phrases that we should probably be saying most frequently to one another. Ready? There's three of them. Here they are. I was wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? So basic. Like we, we start teaching our kids this as toddlers. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's just amazing how hard it can be for us to say such simple but powerful words. But here's what we have to catch a vision for. Every time that a relationship is restored, because a sincere apology has been offered and forgiveness has been extended, every time there is restoration in a relationship, Jesus brings a little bit more peace on earth. And I, I would argue that one of the greatest gifts for those of you that have children like I do, one of the greatest gifts that we can give our kids is from the moment they have the ability to understand, start apologizing to them. I've been apologizing to my kids, and I'm telling you, it's humbling to apologize to a toddler. But the moment that they, ha- the moment that they can conceive of like, this person doesn't seem perfect, the moment that they start to pick up on your failures, no matter how young that might be, just let them learn. Man, my mom, my dad says, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? A few things will model the peace that Jesus wants to bring in the world to them more than that. So we just get better and better, Lord willing, at saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And every time, again, that a relationship is restored through those powerful words, Jesus brings a little bit more peace on earth. Jesus brings peace by making our relationship with others whole. Peace is the process of Jesus making everything in me and around me whole again. And as we get ready to close, I want to share just one more observation. Um, I know we're not all the same in this. We were all kind of raised in different ways, but But I have been in the church 
and around Christians for the entirety of my now 42 years. And in that time, I've observed that Christians tend to take one of two approaches when it comes to peace in the world. So there are many Christians who seem to just be content to sort of hunker down and wait for peace to come. And so in their minds, the world is headed to hell in a handbasket, and so there tends to just be this kind of steady stream of constant complaining about how bad culture is, and often this worship of how great it used to be. It's not a thing. The world's always sucked. And a contentedness to just complain without doing much of anything to pursue peace on this earth. But there's also, I've seen, another kind of Christian that labors to become an agent of peace. And they seem to hear the invitation from the Spirit to partner with him in bringing more peace on earth. These people labor for peace with God, peace with themselves, and peace with others. They lift up their voices and labor for justice in this world, because without justice, there is not real shalom. So I don't know about you, but I really want us to be that second kind of Christian. I believe that Jesus wants us to be agents of peace. And it starts with wholeness in relationship with God. So will you throw yourself on Jesus' mercy through faith? Being an agent of peace means pursuing wholeness in relationship with ourselves. So will you do that work physically, emotionally, and mentally? The work of becoming more personally whole. Being an agent of peace means pursuing wholeness in relationship with others. So will you be a person that is quick to apologize? And will you be a person who does the hard work of learning to forgive? Will you protect the people in your life? Will you hold space for them? Will you encourage them and build up those around you? Because Jesus is our Prince of Peace, each of us can assume the responsibility, aided by his Holy Spirit, to become agents of peace. This is about more than us just feeling the absence of conflict or chaos in our lives. But as such a small part of what Jesus intends our experience of peace to be. But being agents of peace in this world is his plan for bringing peace on this earth. This is his process for making everything in and around us whole again. So will we become agents of peace? Let's pray and ask that the Spirit of God would help us to walk in that more and more faithfully. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the really genuinely incredible good news it is that we can be made whole again. Lord, this gives us not just optimism, like we talked about last week, but true hope that even what feels like the most broken parts of us can be put back together. That our deepest and oldest wounds can be healed. And Lord, I just want to pray over anyone that is really struggling to believe that that's possible. 
Lord, in any group this size, there, there has to be people in this room that have old, long-standing wounds that no matter how much they've prayed, no matter what they've tried to do, they still feel them nagging in the shadows of their soul. And Lord, I just pray that into that place, you would again bring hope of peace, hope that wholeness is possible, that healing is possible. So Lord, first and foremost, I pray over anyone listening who may not have stepped into a saving relationship with you. Lord, would you awaken hearts to faith? Would you draw each of our hearts, throw themselves on your mercy by faith? Lord, we thank you that you don't present us with a long list of rules that we have to keep to be made right. Your word is filled with all kinds of rules, and and we stumble over them regularly. And so we thank you, Lord, that it is your grace, not our performance, that makes us right with you. Lord, I pray that you would do the work of making us more and more whole, emotionally, physically, mentally. Lord, I pray that we would work toward wholeness in our relationships with one another. That when we hurt one another, that we would apologize. That when someone extends genuine repentance, genuine genuinely apologizes to us that we would humble ourselves and find the grace necessary to be able to forgive in response. So Lord, we do pray that you would bring more peace on this earth, that you would bring more peace in our lives, and we see that that starts in our hearts. So would you make us agents of We thank you that you are the Prince of Peace, and we thank you for the gift of peace on this earth that is not our perfect experience now, but will be more and more. And one day we thank you, you will return, and you will bring full, total wholeness to everything that is broken in our lives and in this world. While we wait for that, we wait by faith. We love you. We need you. 